Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. All right, welcome to the show. This is Truthverse, and I'm your host, Brendan D. Murphy. This week, I am, well, I have the pleasure of being joined by Michael Tassarian, who, in this community at least, probably requires no intro, but um, I would like to get one from him anyway, regardless. So, Michael, A, thanks for being here, mate, and B, maybe you could give us a quick background. I wanted to ask you, actually, how, I mean, what was it? What was, was there a trigger moment that got you onto this path to do this work, or was it sort of a gradual process? Were you in a life situation that led, led you down this road? What happened? Yes, it was definitely, uh, it's a bit of both, right? I, I always look back to two things. One is in about 1980, it, it wasn't 1980s, so probably in about 1981, probably late, a friend of mine at the time had brought in a magazine from uh, a sort of one of these uh, new age gurus called uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. And he wasn't into her and I wasn't in there. You know, the people I knew, but we were scanning, you know, at that time it was 1980, the new age movement was at its peak. And he had brought in this uh, article and it wasn't about her. It was an article featured in their journal or in their magazine about sub, uh, subliminal art, subver- you know, subliminal art. Uh, the actual just the simple technique of it, which I think was all the rage at that time, because a book had come out called Subliminal Seduction by Brian Wilson Key. Uh-huh. It's a book you can still get today. And he wrote a follow up called Age of Manipulation. And that caught my eye. And as a matter of fact, what am I talking about? He also brought a set of tapes, cassette tapes with a speech given to an audience by Elizabeth Clare Prophet about this kind of subject. It was about other things, but she touched on it. I guess these were lectures. And he, he played that, and that was very interesting because it went into contemporary culture. She was all negative, of course. There was no positive uh, about rock and roll or music. And later on, you know, I objected to that. But yeah, okay, you know, she took the negative side, but pointed out some very, very interesting things. And that article, more than anything else, I reread. I was only about 14, 15 at the time, and I reread it many times. And I wasn't able to keep it. This guy didn't want to lose this article, you know, this magazine. So I never had it in my collection, but I remembered it up here. About a, about a year before that, uh, my last year in Ireland, before we had made this trip out to the States, probably 79, something like that, maybe 80, I had come across the work of Jim Fitzpatrick, the great Irish artist, you know, and we're still in contact and he's given me permission to use some of his artwork on my books and all, which is just, I kind of have to pinch myself. Are you kidding? And the story of the Irish had, uh, you know, the true story, the true story of pre-Celtic things, which we're still talking about today in our podcasts and premiums and things like that. So those two were big. And if there was a third one, then it was more bizarre because it was more to do with satanic societies and ritual murder of, you know, can, can you believe it? Right. But it, that's the way that cookie crumbled because in the mid seventies, there had been a spate of horrendous murders in Belfast. Now Belfast is known for its terrorism, but it's not known for normal crime mm-hmm. for true crime, for anything like that. And in fact, before the terrorism murder was unknown, and, and if it was a murder, it was a, it was a lunatic. It was the village idiot or, you know, one of these people that was known to be 
it was always a case in which it was the, basically the village idiot who had you know clubbed somebody to death or done a bizarre murder. There were murders, but it was so far and few between. It was like practically non-existent. One one in a blue moon, right? And then it might have been more of your you know bar fight went wrong kind of thing. There was never any actual malicious murder. This is strange because people think of Ireland as nothing but terrorism and murder, but they forget that real crime, real policemen, you know, it was it was unknown. Mm. But in the 1970s, this changed. And suddenly these young men were found brutally murdered, cut up in pieces and thrown into rivers. And it was really nobody had ever heard of anything like this. And then my dad had said something extraordinary. And he was a Marxist. And he, it wasn't, as far as I know, this wasn't anything that he'd learned on TV or anything. Like, it was something he knew from being involved with politics. And he kept making this remark that it was high-placed pedophile members of the government, mm-hmm. right? In the 1970s, the mid-70s, he, he came, he told, you know, a family, he goes, ah, that's, it's those boys, it's this, it's that, you know? And he never embellished it or said anything more. He just goes, yeah, I know, it's, it's these uh, homosexual uh, monstrosities over in, you know, parliament, over in uh, British government. He had cited them. And that somehow stuck. So... As the years went by, I start cutting out magazine things and keeping uh, stories, but didn't know anything, right? Every one of these three things I was into was in a most primitive state, but the seeds have been planted. And then gradually, 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 it built up and those became finally vocational, but they never really ramped up until I got to the States on the second, well, it's actually the third visit uh, in 1989. And then it was Desert Storm. And so there's a lot of Patriot work out there. And then that kicked it, that kicked it off into earnest, into proper, you know, you, you can you can drive the car instead of sitting behind the car wheel like you know, a kid in the driveway going, Daddy, look at me driving the car. I, I'm actually, you know, got my license and I'm on the street, so to speak, you know, weaving all over the road, but it was the beginning <laughs> stages. Okay. So it started in the in the late 70s and 80s, actually. People don't believe that. Yeah, uh, but in a sort of a hmm, sketchy way where I could have been diverted, you know, from it, and it would just been a hobby. And yeah. so the way I look at all my work, even today, is, is that, that it's a hobby, all caps hobby, important hobby, but how the hell did it get to doing podcasts like this? How did it get, I, I've lost track of how that even happened and why, because mm-hmm. it's not something that was intentional, uh, Brendan, never, never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, have you, along the way, have you, you know, you refer to it as a hobby, but um, I mean, this would be your full-time, surely for a long time, your full-time kind of work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was uh, the research alone. Forget getting on yeah, yeah. public television or whatever, you know, that would happen about 98. The research alone suddenly started to take over. And then I had to decide to not do this and not do that and work part time and have nothing but house. I, I had a very bad time in that 90s period in America with bosses. I don't know if it was just me or it was the work that I was doing at the time. Can't really peg it down. Maybe it was them. I think they were all our souls, and that's 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 wall to wall our souls is what you're meeting. So, yeah, they didn't give you any leeway at all, and uh, it was absolutely dreadful. So I tried to pull down to part time, which is the way to save yourself uh, to keep the job. Because if you if you're full time, I was I was working in jobs at full time, which is just putting a target that when they want to cut staff, they cut the the full time first. I don't know if you've ever had that phenomenon in Australia, but it's, it was a really big epidemic one in Bay Area where they were cutting corners. Yeah. And so if you stayed full time, you, your job was taken away. Whereas you went to part time, maybe say only three days a week, you'd be on skid row. You'd be on breadline and like that, but you might just keep your job. Um, 
so that's the kind of way I lived, you know, for years and terrible, terrible stress and terrible, terrible uh, stress over, over that, over paying rent and having no safety net, very different environment than Ireland and things like that. And just meeting asshole after asshole after asshole, it, it really grated on me, but I persisted with the research. The research was everything. And so the little money that I did have, I'd invest in books. There was no internet at that time. So you had to really, there was no PDFs and things like that. It was actually, I had 30, I think it was, I actually at one time had 36 steamer trunks full of books Yeah, right. and I had to whittle it down. And the lowest I ever got it to was about 15. Yeah, right. It's hard to yeah, let go. It's, then, hard to, it's hard to cut that list. <laughs> yep, yeah, it's very difficult. And five of those ended up being videotapes. The, when I, the most I whittled it down to was five of uh, five crates of videotapes getting worse and worse and worse every time I played them. A big liability. But I kept them to the end, you know, until the internet came along and whittled down the books even more, basically giving armfuls of books away. Mm. That was the only way to get rid of them after I'd made personal notes out of them and or nailed mentally what they're talking about. And I only kept the priceless ones, you know, uh, collected works of, say, Eustace Mullins and L.A. Waddell, you know, the ones that were I knew were kind of irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. uh, but I succeeded. But it took uh, the best part of 20 years to lower that list, uh, you know, to get rid of these trunks and crates. Yeah, It was absolutely monumental uh, hassle because you were buying in hardback and you had, I would buy a book, even if it was only for a one line or a couple of lines, I knew it's precious, but the rest of the book, you know, I didn't agree with or didn't want. I mean, Zachariah Sitchin has written alone 12 different books or something in his chronicles, right? So you, I mean, are you going to study these things or are you going to just piss about? My, my, my intention was always to do it right and to do it solidly, but the cost, hmm. the absolute cost, you know, of doing that and uh, working with assholes to make the money people who wanted to strangle, all collectivists, all communitarians, you know, every, everything's to do with the, the team, team, but you're not a team player, you blah, 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 you know, yeah, I'm not a fucking team player about that, what are you going to do about it, this is America, the land of the free, do you remember that, you bastards, well, I guess you forgot somewhere along the fucking line, it's just all awful experiences, don't even get me started. When, when did you manage to get, like, when, when did you extricate yourself from that situation and, and sort of move on? Oh, yeah, I got very, uh, the last job was in a bookstore in the Bay Area, right in Menlo Park, California, not far from Santa Cruz Avenue. Uh, it didn't last because I get very, very sick from stress. And that was the last job. Yeah. I was so, I had to be literally carried out in a stretcher. The, the, basically, the owners of this pathetic bookstore, this place turned up, actually had to see them. They were multi, multi-millionaires from the East Coast. One look at these people and you'd never want to work again. Not only were they mentally disturbed, like crazy people, but they were crazy people with a, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And so they just looked at you some crumb that was in their way. And <laughs> there was a hundred other things that were wrong with the place. And I got very physically ill just from stress. So that was it. I, was, I couldn't do any more jobs of that nature. Couldn't even do taxi or any, you know, anything. That, there were some jobs you could get where you would be kind of independent. And I did a lot of that, but no, it was just over. So a friend of mine had begged me and had been begging me a lot to do astrological readings. They thought my interpretation skills were very good. Um, and I'd resisted for approximately more than 10 years at this time. Part of it because I didn't have the skill, but in the latter area, you know, I did have the skill, but maybe for that five years, but I resisted. So somebody from another perspective said, sure, Michael, you give yourself hell by working for these plonkers because you could have done counseling. But 
that come out of that, that uh, what do you call it? That antipathy came out of my experiences from 1970s with the new age movement. Right. And my family was deeply involved in. And I didn't want to do readings or see clients because it smacked of everything that my family members and other extended people have been doing. And I gained a great personal antipathy to it. So I, I basically shot myself in the foot because it took years and years and years. It was something that was so, it was like aversion therapy or something. I didn't want to do it because I'd been so experienced to it. I didn't want to have anything to do with, you know, taking phone calls, receiving clients, uh, make, making my life that because I'd been since a child exposed to this mm. and uh, despised it so much that even though I did have the skill, I decided never to. And I, I swore to me, I'd never do it. I'd sweep the streets and all of this. But a point came where I had done all of that and it was worse. Mm. So in some bizarre, and I, with all my resistance, with all the resistance that anyone, like a, you know, like a, a mad goat that just a donkey that couldn't be pulled to where he needed to be, but I had finally to give, to start. And so the answer to this question, it started in about 1998, where my friends who were in the New Age, these are better people, you know, got me clients, sent me clients from their practices over. It was a nightmare. It was, you know, but the benefits started to quickly show. There's no boss. There's no, there's no monkey's ass telling me what to do. Yep. Uh, no, you know, no ponce. And so, and it, it just the stress lowered down. There's a different kind of stress in trying to do well by the client and give them a reading, but I would do follow-ups, you know, and we had a really good relationship. And uh, it, it kind of, it, it, although it took many years, really, it was an upward curve. It started working. And the better thing about it was within the first year or two of doing those readings, uh, I started doing classes as well uh, very quickly because they were saying, hey, this is great. Do you ever have a class teaching it? And that got me to do that in the Bay Area for a while. And then then that led to getting the classes online. Mm -hmm. So in 2000, maybe just a little bit before that, you know, the plans were made, but about 98 to 2000 with with uh, help from two or three people, you know, we finally slowly launched Taroscopes, my very first website. Mm -hmm. And even though it was in a very primitive state, um, it kind of gave me a shot in the arm to say, hey, you know, if I can just put the last dot on this website, I'll be satisfied that I've done something with my life. So it gives you a mini goal just to mm -hmm. see it come together because it actually took a lot longer than it should. It took a lot longer and people had to donate their time. And it was in a time when the internet was itself fairly pathetic. So it it was like pulling teeth to get it together, but I had the content. My side of it was pretty much achieved because I designed it, had the, had the artwork, had the content, and it slowly went up with other people's help when they could you know, see me goes, oh, come over on Wednesday, we'll do a bit and come over, you know, it took mm -hmm. a long, long time. But that's what you, if you're not paying for something, uh, well, you know, yep. you can't be ordering people around who've got full-time jobs. So the first Tarascopes came together extremely slowly, extremely slowly. Um, but at least I set a goal and said, if I can get that done, when we put the final stop on it, I will say, I want nothing else out of life. You know, it was kind of a weird decision. So there was a really good celebration point now, of course, that would, that's ludicrous. Of course, one thing snowballs onto the next. But at that point, it felt that if I could get this finished, um, I would have several virtues out of this. One is that, well, it would just be like finishing a product, a, a project, which I'd never really relished before. Everything, something always got in the way. And secondly, I could empty my brain of all of this 25, you know, well, by that time, it would have been at least 15 years mm. of research. 
that's a good number, you know, because again, it goes back to the mid 80s. And that's true, because in the mid 80s, I had gone out into Ireland into the field to study the megaliths. So a lot of things that I'm doing now did indeed start there. Mm-hmm. The people believe that or not, the, you know, the, the reading of Jim Fitzpatrick and many, many, many other books. So yeah, I could empty a lot of that out, not all of it, but uh, the great body of work was just rotting in there and floating about could get could get out into a tactile form. Even it was badly written and horrible low resolution pictures. You should have seen the thing. You know, the, the font color was unbelievable. You couldn't find anything on the net today to be as ugly and hideous, but at least it was like, there it is out of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, if I need to know it, I can go and, oh, yeah, I remember that. But I can actually disgorge it in some way, leaving mental room then for other studies. You know, there's an old uh, Sherlock Holmes story, I think it's called Study in Scarlet in which uh, the character Sherlock Holmes says, the mind is not like a room with elastic walls in which you can just continue to, you know, uh, bung it full of stuff. Mm, mm. And that is kind of the way it is because uh, I felt very much that my mind was overcrowded with information and it's going to have to take a different form. So, but even though I wasn't a writer or a web designer or a public speaker, these things opened up because just that action of saying, can I get this out of my head? You learn to write, you learn to put it out there. Things I had no skill in from school onwards, I was total failure and all of that, uh, started to develop in its own gradual way, like a sort of apprenticeship. Only trouble is, it turns out thousands and then suddenly later hundreds of thousands are watching your evolution because they're all reading the stuff on the site. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but this is kind of like before email, so you don't really know any of this. You know, you just, I'm just putting it up there in this way and reading it back to myself and fixing it and adding and adding. In one or two years, you start to realize this is public. People have been following your people have been print. I've got people email me say, I was printing out the first crap on your website. He's me burn it for God's sake, <laughs> save yourself. You know, come back and read it now, you know, but that it just took on a roll from about 2000 98. I was doing TV. So that date is important because the, uh, you know, cable TV in the Bay area was calling me and I did several shows with them. Some of it I've got on archive. It's been put up, you know, now and again, good interviews, good people, people who helped run the Conspiracy Con conference. And they later approached me in uh, something very, more than anything I just said, something happened much more important than that was in 2000, in the year 2000, in June. Never forget it, you see. It was a summer in June and, uh, oh, wrong. It was uh, probably the uh, Whole Life Expo in San Francisco, which is around about April, May, actually. And I was at this conference and the people, Victoria Jack was there who runs the, con- the Conspiracy Con conference and the UFO Expo. She's really ran the, when she was alive, she ran the UFO Expo, but her friends, and she was also part of the Conspiracy Con. These are big conferences in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I'm walking over, to, uh, I'm walking. I vaguely recognized her because I'd, uh, when David Icke first came, I went to his pilot conference in the you know in the bay area it was in san carlos at the marriott hotel and that's I, I i knew her face you know as you're meeting people and stuff like that so i said oh yeah you're uh what are you what's your name oh yeah yeah victoria she goes yeah good we're bumping into you would you like to come and talk at my conference i'm standing there with a friend right and go uh what she goes you know would you like to come and do your talk on atlantis at, at uh, the conference and I'm standing there going, sure, you don't know me from Adam. I was the only chaperone to, you know, Jordan Maxwell or one of the other guys. What the fuck are you talking And what's this thing about Atlantis? I'm no expert in Atlantis. I've not done a book on it. 
I have not written on it. There's no stuff on my website about it. There's a lot about astrotheology and, and related matters, mythology. I don't even remember what was on the first tarot. Oh, a lot about tarot. A lot of, it would have been a lot about astrology and tarot. And I'm looking at it, right? And I said, yeah, okay. I hear, I actually more like hear myself saying yes. Right, after, after 10 years of saying no uh, to everything in the, in the Bay Area, including no to, you know, having a career and doing readings and all, I hear this voice going, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, <laughs> idiot, what have you just... So they walk away and I'm standing there like, what did you just do? And and actually, it turned out that this conference was coming up in like a month. Oh, shit. <laughs> yep. Oh, and by the way, in the meantime, I was taking my first holiday to Sweden. That's why I don't remember. Don't forget this time, right? And I'm thinking, oh, you Burke, right? So, so I packed up the biggest hold all, you know, the, one of these wheelie ones that anybody's ever laid eyes on. It was mega, mega size, and there was about a hundred books in it. <laughs> the, these people at the airport were just going and what's your game mate? this thing weighed a ton i took every book out of these crates that i had uh, that even looked like it was even remotely connected to the prehist prehistory you know and atlantis and i did i did have a whole bunch of stuff but i was taking books this thick and the thing ended up busting right but i take it over to sweden on my first holiday. i didn't see sweet i didn't see sweden i didn't see the country because i'm like this and my friend uh, my friend's family members and other people and friends we were meeting, we we're going, what's wrong with him? You know, he, he doesn't interact. And she goes, don't, uh, my friend said, don't worry. You know, he's, uh, he's, he has to do this big conference. They explained that, uh, you know, there's a big thing coming up and I have to do it. And to my horror, I never saw the country. I was like, oh, lovely, lovely. <laughs> Just hang on a minute, underlining this. Yeah. But it all came out good. And then I get off the plane on the way back and three days later is the conference. The phone rings or a message had been left by Victoria Jack saying, basically, the, you know, she's short and sweet. And she said, do you have a book, uh, you know, bring it with you because you have a table. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And I'm going, what's she talking about a book? Other people's books? Well, I don't know. And then I got the phone. I was very confused. I said, what do you mean by a book? She goes, do you have any you know, a book? Have you written a book? She said, no fucking way, right? <laughs> she goes, well, do you have any speaker notes? She me, yeah, I've typed out a few. She goes, bring them spiral bond them do whatever staple them and bring them because you'll sell them and, and if you don't bring it i'm not letting you in <laughs> so i all these speaker notes that i did in fact have there's no powerpoint that will come the following year uh i did run down and it was a weekend so none of the printer places were open and the ones that were open was like kinko's which at that time was six pence six six uh, cents a page which was i couldn't afford that's why I told totally, you, you know, have no money, right? And then I suddenly remembered that up in, uh, not far from San Carlos, this is, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, uh, not far from there was a printer that I've been walking past as I went up to this British food center, you know, which was my shopping habit. And I did remember this guy who printed. So I look at the watch, maybe he's open. So I ran. And I went through the back door where, you know, I'd seen the sign of this guy and he was open. He was in there printing off things. He was closed, but he was printing. He was doing work for people. Backlog. And I ran in here and met, met, and he kind of recognized me because, you know, he seen me coming past his shop on numerous occasions. He goes, oh, yeah. I, what's up? He said, no, you, are you open? You know, do you take things? And I explained him what I needed, which was, you know, pretty much like thick I don't remember your pages, but I said, look, I need these to you know, be spiral bound or whatever. You know, I need them to be printed. And he goes, oh, 
it'll take several days to do that kind of printing. But if you just want it to be like this, and it turned out it was practically just stapled. <laughs> but the guy did it. Yeah. The guy, it was coming up to the weekend and I had just no time. And the way it worked was I was able to pick those up just literally minutes before we drove to the conference. Wow. And I slapped them down on the table and every single one of them sold. Probably $14.95, some ludicrous price, right? But I treated it as if it was a book. It was my work and I didn't want to let it go. And that was the Atlantis book. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and Richard Hoagland and Dr. Roger Lear. I shared a table with Michael Cremo. I mean, talk about being dumped in at the deep end. <laughs> but I found them all, Brandon, to be nice people, mm. right? These are not pompous assholes. Michael Cremo sat with me and gently and quietly talked to me in a very, and I'm kind of, I'm the outsider looking in, right? Mm. I was one of the youngest people on the circuit, if not the youngest. Uh, and then, so I'm kind of, you know, like observing them too. And to tell you the truth, I didn't find any of them that pompous. Later on, I'd meet people who were, but um, every single person loved me. Every single person took me under their wing. They were super nice. They wanted new blood. They were desperate for it and they were getting it. And it took on even more than that because after I did give my speech, these same people were coming over to me and now confiding that the information itself was new to them mm -hmm. and was moving them on a personal level. Dr. Roger Lear after talking about Celtic uh, legends, started to confess to me these weird dreams that he had had and these weird experiences that only now throughout his life had never been explained by anybody in the paranormal movement. This is one of the leaders of MUFON. Mm. And he's coming over to Jack, you know, here is Joe off the street. And he's going, that explains these weird experiences I've had. And they were doing this. Several of the people were saying that confirms this or that confirms another paranormal thing that they had done. Victoria Jack just totally, utterly adored me, <laughs> wanted me back again. And that's how I got kicked off. And I'm like, what's going on then? Right. And they were, what's all this? You know, I was totally flying by the seat of my pants yeah. and they were getting applause and I hadn't even got to my own table before everybody, the book, those, every single one of these stapled little booklets was in their hands and they were handing me $20 bills. Yeah. And because of Victoria Jack. So that took on a life of its own and that's, therefore there's no will involved. You see, all of this stuff was like a roller coaster. And then because they bought the book, uh, I had a year to prepare to fix it better. So the next one was a you know a little bit better. It wasn't spiral bound. It was more bound. It was like good. Um, the next year, better again. The next year, better again. You know, so and then other people chimed in to say, look, I'll edit this monstrosity for you, you know, because it was just a set of notes. Right? And then it moved from that point on. And then in 2002, in January and February, I wrote the introduction Somebody asked me, can you write an introduction? You know, the, woman, the person who's helping me, this professional editor said, you need a preface. What's that then? You know, <laughs> yeah. like an introduction, Michael, to summarize what the book's about. <laughs> oh, I can't do that. She goes, no, no, give it a try. And I sat down and here's a remarkable thing. And I was in Seattle at the time. Uh, it was my first year there. I sat down, as you do, with a blank page. And there's just a feeling of such anxiety and stress. And I'm just saying, no, I can't do this. And it was almost like blinking that before the night had come, the entire introduction, as is in the book now, was there on the page in front of me. And it says, you know, within the next 10 years, human race will discover something true about its origins and blah, blah, blah. It's famous intro. I don't know how I wrote that. To this mm -hmm. day, I have no idea how that wrote. Let's confess that. The rest of the book, yeah, it was taken from the notes and methodically putting it together best I could at that time. But that introduction, which had launched the book, because without that, there could be no first chapter. 
that launched the book, not just as a set of notes. That set of notes is now the appendices in the Atlantis book. Mm. It's still there. Um, but the book itself came after this bizarre experience where I don't know how it got done. I don't know how I typed those first words or wrote it down or anything. It just, it just was there. And so 2002, that year, I think then had a big moment because something else guided that hand. I tell you that was not Will that wrote mm -hmm. that introduction. And then, you know, without that, I couldn't have launched the, the chapters. I just didn't have the confidence. That woman phoning me up and said, look, you know, can you just write an introduction to the, the thing you're doing? So, oh God, here we go again. Thought that was all done and dusted, you know, but no, now they want this and now they want that. But that night that that introduction came, uh, basically is the beginning mm -hmm. uh, and their invitation that lady's invitation why did i meet her that day you know why did and it was just about to go to sweden and it's like the worst possible time i had to really cr uh, what do you call it you know cram mm -hmm. all under pressure yeah. that's why there's you know a few errors here in the book and there because it was cram it was totally cramming cramming she goes don't you better bring your notes or i'm not letting you into the conference and she had a very stern way about her you know and i said oh no not this so <laughs> you know i just threw things together unedited unedited and then that unedited document somebody poached it on me i'd sent it for some review and they put it up on the internet the bastards and uh, i got a lot of flack oh, wow. you know from that and yeah the unedited version went up and then i found out the darker side of the internet mm -hmm. you know which is a thieving poaching stealing torrenting you name it Th then i was beset with that problem you know and then the feedback from the christian groups and all sorts of weird groups about well he doesn't know what he's talking about so it was negative as well as positive you know Oh, well, you know, there's nothing to sweat about when the Christians don't like what you're doing. <laughs> I always took it as, I just put on the Slayer and go, brilliant, put on the Metallica, yeah, yeah, you know, and just say, yeah, keep it all coming, you know, but it was brutal. So it was, a, no, I never worried about them. I knew I was so strong in my content. I was just disappointed that they'd have a, such a brash way of doing it because I'm open. My door at that time was open to anyone say, you got a problem with something? contact me politely with respect and we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. And I have, do you know that I'd say about 40% of my work from the beginning has been perfected because of exactly what I'm telling you. So it's a reality when people like yourself said, Michael, you got that wrong or Michael, uh, here's how that story really went or, or here's an addition or here's a, a better you know, source or sending me pictures. I responded to that. So if you have another group that's so dirty that they hide behind a moniker, an avatar, or whatever, a handle, and just th throw spew at you. And it wasn't just Christians, by the way. There's a lot of people in this movement. Then I just couldn't understand that and had no time for that, you know, because my work was embellished by people saying, have you read this book? And to this very day, our latest guest, Caleb, just gave me three books I never heard of. Two days ago, I've got them on order. Beautiful. So that was my way of interacting with people, respectfully. Yeah. I didn't get it back. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get it back. But I had a very small group of people who liked it. Now, I didn't even really care about the audience, to tell you the truth. I didn't get a chance to, because all of the people that were the leaders in this field were so welcoming to me. And this includes Jim Mars and many others I could mention. I hope I um, will be able to, you know, uh, even some of them were Christians. They didn't say bad, and, but they didn't, you know, they didn't say good. But they were welcoming me there. They're, you know, people like Stan Monteith <laughs> were saying, you know, more the merrier. You don't, mm. you know, what you say doesn't interfere with my beliefs. Well, I'm thinking, great, because what you say doesn't interfere with mine. Let's get all around the table. Mm -hmm. Well, there were Christian thinkers in the movement who were like that. Yeah. Rolf Epperson and others who just welcomed you in and had no problem. Um, so I thought I was, I was spoiled by that. 
And so I didn't even get a chance to think, what's the audience thinking then? What's the audience thinking? Because mm -hmm. I had such a reception from the original group. And then this one lady who ran this, the uh, was, at, was at the UFO Expo, said, I run the conferences up in Seattle. Would you like to come? I'm thinking, I've never been to Seattle. I'm not worried about the conference. I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to because I've never seen a lot of my life as, you know, but seeing places. So I said, oh, you know, I've heard a lot of good reports about Seattle. So I went up there. And this would have been, this was in uh, 2001. If I mentioned the, the month September 2001, might it ring any bells? So I don't know what's coming through around the corner, right? So they invite me in May because I was at Conspiracy Con, which is always in May. It's always on uh, Memorial Day. And uh, this lady who puts on the uh, conferences up there. And by the way, I didn't even realize at the time that MUFON, this extremely important paranormal UFO movement, and NUFON as well, there's several uh, Peter Davenport were all in actually in Seattle. I didn't know this. And I didn't know that the, uh, the, the three families that started MUFON live in Seattle. I had no idea that when I walk up and do that conference, here's the creme de la creme of the entire paranormal movement in America. It's their home ground. I'm glad I didn't know that because I just would have melted, right? And then uh, a, a point came where I nearly canceled the conference, but then it, it was we were down and then back up again. And so we're on, I'm on the plane. And I get there about the 5th of September, 2001. Note that, right? And the conference um, is about to come up on the 15th. Well, what happened to America on 9-11, September 11th? Mm -hmm. Holy shit. The place is in lockdown. There's cops everywhere. There's army. There's police. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the, and the airport is completely off limits they're not even letting flights out uh, you know after the conference i'm trying to get back to the bay area so i do my little talk there oh i do the, i do the conference and the way it worked was i think i'm getting the dates mixed up here i think that oh that's right the conference that i actually went to the first time in seattle was in it was in may the same month as they put on conspiracy con in the bay area they clash it's not a very clever business move so i did the first conference in the first visit to seattle was actually in may but it, it was again. It was a it was a sellout. It was they were all over me. They were very very popular. And this time I think I did have a slide slideshow. Primitive as it was, and then these three families welcomed me to their tables. The ones who had you know pioneered it, and they're all in their sixties, and they just loved me. And they say, Michael, do you do anything else? So I whipped out this five page brochure, and they saw this thing about Kabbalah and sacred symbolism, and you know all these different things I had listed, and they went, Oh my God, we got to bring you back. We're very into this. And it turned out that they all were interested in the subversive use of sacred symbolism, mm -hmm. you know, presentation or whatever. And so they invited me back special or in the September I'm talking about. Um, just me alone to talk at this uh, place, this venue in, in, in Seattle. So I say yes, and I did commit and I came. And this is the event then that I was uh, trying to, you know, after I did it on the weekend, trying to fly out. 9-11 had happened and there's no flights out. And uh, I, so I stayed extra days in Seattle and got to love the city. That's how I ended moving there. And finally, there was some flights. That was an incredible day that day, the flight at the airport at SeaTac. Uh, I had to spend hours and hours and hours and hours waiting. There was, there was no flight, so you, it was like you could just bed down. And I did. I climbed over a wall, jumped into the back uh, garden of the Radisson Hotel, which is near to the airport, and slept wow. <laughs> in the grass. 
<laughs> and then you know, snuck in and got there was a big banquet on. I don't know, probably the Shriners or the Masons for all I know. That would have been a laugh, wouldn't it? But they had this big, yeah, and I'm going around looking for a kiosk or a Denny's or something like that. And I find that there's this big, the Radisson had just this mega, I don't know who the hell it was because the whole place was empty. And there's all these tables lined up full of grub that they'd been eating, like this big banquet. So I'm like, yo, right in there, pour ourselves coffees and all, you know, still hours for the flight. And, and I wolfed down all these sandwiches and shit, and thinking somebody's going to come in and go, Oi, what do you think you're doing? You know? But nobody disturbed me at all. Wow. And I climbed I climbed back over this ramp rampart that leads to the hotel. It was just such a crazy day. And got down the day that the UFO Expo was on. So I got out of Seattle after 9-11 and got down there for the 15th or something when this other conference was going to be on. Guess what? Only a handful of speakers have turned up because they're all scared shitless. This conspiracy gone, right? Yeah, and they're all too fucking frightened to fly. So there's was, there was a couple of speakers there, but half the gang hadn't turned up out of pure yeah. fear. Yeah. So now there's a panic on and Victoria Jack and all doesn't know what to do. And so they, and somebody else is rewriting the opening speech because of what's happened. You know, they scrubbed the one that was going to happen and they wrote a new one, which was really great. And it went, it went on. There was just enough people there for the conference to go on. And I'm never going to forget that. And then very shortly after that, within uh, by October 20th, I'd moved to Seattle. I packed up everything and actually moved from the Bay Area to Seattle. And I've been there ever since. So that's how that happened. And several conferences, you know, went to do several conferences. But the trouble was that after, after 9-11, Boeing, all these people in Boeing lost their jobs because of the chaos and many other jobs got lost as well. So there was a slump, there was an economic slump and it hurt me because the Boeing Parapsychological Society and a lot of other societies in Seattle that were supporting me, asking me to come to these conference and taking readings and all things, were all now people who had lost their jobs. Mm. So I get to this new city and I'm having a really good time. I love it there, but there's been a major financial slump. It hit other people as well, but it hit me really hard because who's going to afford readings or a class on esoterica when you know you're trying to put bread mm. on the table? You know, so yeah, there was suddenly more poverty. You know, so I went through years and years and years of agony again and that's when i slowly worked on the origins and oracles dvds and the reason was for that is because i had them on tape uh remember i told you that back in 1998 i had done uh, interviews with the bay area yeah and they'd they'd presented me with tapes of those interviews so i did have those tapes but see videotapes every time you play them they get worse and worse and worse in quality so even though i was burning them off for clients i stopped in in this period here 2000 in 2000 and 2001, I ceased making them because I didn't want my clients to have this low quality. Thing. So I tried to improve them, nothing happened. So then I suddenly realized I'm going to have to reproduce all that content on a lasting format, everything. All this hard work is going to go for nothing. So I had a friend who knew about filming and DVDs. He didn't end up helping me, but uh, I found out from him how much fits on a single CD in those days. It was only an hour. And you can get box sets, you know, and I had the basic sketch from him. Then I went down and hired a company, really top end company to help me. They did uh, after some severe trouble with some of the oily rags in their business, these Christians who immediately divination in the goddess, subversive symbolism. And so I was given the cold shoulder by these bozos. Right. But luckily I went upstairs and uh, the the company owners was just horrified by the treatment I'd got because I sent them all the emails of these bozos Uh. and they saw that I would mistreat it. 
So finally, they came through on my side and gave me royal treatment. So I got this beautiful box set made, you know, from them. And that was the Origins of Narcos, 22 DVDs, whatever it might have been, a real magnum opus. And people loved it. People yeah. absolutely loved it. And again, that was another way for me to get out. It seemed like centuries of knowledge into that. Yeah. And that emptied my mind enough to then work on the Irish Origins project, which came next around 2007, but it wasn't published till 2009. So it took more than two years to write those volumes and several other years, you know, to fix them. And then came astrotheology and other books as well. And now we're doing more, you know, philosophy, psychology, female psychology, you know, but it, it, I can't remember one act of will. It's just like being pushed on roller skates, you know, from the moment you wake up, the yeah. project owns me, not me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. And so was, uh, I know you, you know, you have, like you just said, you know, gone a lot into philosophy and psychology and, and this kind of stuff. So do you feel like your interest in that, did that kind of, was that opened, did the way open to that from, you know, the tarot and the, the, the astrology stuff, like did that, was that bridging kind of led you into that side of it with the psychology and philosophy? Because you're quite big on that and you've been very deep into that realm. How did you sort of get there? I think it came first. Yep. I think the tarot stuff, I mean, it's hard to tell because a tarot thing happened to me when I was about um, 11, but it was only one experience. Uh, and that involved uh, Paul, the Paul Solomon group. He had sent uh, one of his staff over to Ireland to give it a little bit of a lecture, you know, uh, kind of hosted by my family type of thing, but hosted you know, a few others. And uh, we did a tarot meditation and that, I won't go into details, but that had a very big effect on me. And mm -hmm. so my relationship started then, if I remember correctly, uh, the date. But the philosophy has been in my blood from the beginning. It's just the way I am, my mm -hmm. chart or you know whatever the hell. Uh, and then, uh, but that uh, was just in the background before any of these other things came along and psychology too, you know, but mm -hmm. I didn't know anything really about it. It was just a disposition, latent. Yeah. And all these other studies and the, the conspiracy thing took over, uh, as I say, ramped up really in the, in the 90 period of Desert Storm. So, but you see, the very first book, when I came in, I came in September 89 to the States for this longest, you know, for my basically permanent stay. The very first book I actually bought, and it was within days of coming there, was Spinoza, Philosophy. And it sat there, you know, so I know it. I know the cover. And then all these other philosophy books came and they were right beside my bed. So, the, so that, that tells me, I always have that as a memory that it must have been important, very mm. much important then. And of course it was because two years before, in 1987, I start taking actual classes in philosophy in, in, in Ireland. Yeah, right. right. Not planned. Uh, it was to break extreme depression. I've, I suffered from very, very major depression especially through the 80s and, and other times as well. And if I knew at that time, if I didn't get up out of my bed, you know, it's partly to do with the environment in Ireland, but other things as well. And I knew that if I didn't get up and do something, I would be dead. I would just rot away. And a friend of mine had been going to philosophy class for several years, got a degree and all this nonsense, right? And we talk, I was very philosophically minded, but he would throw stuff at me and he was taking these classes. And I don't know, you know, he kept on saying to me, you should, you should go to the class. You should go to the class. And no one on this planet, and I swear by this, no one on this fucking planet hates mainstream education more than me <laughs> or, had, or had a worse time, except back in the Dickensian period. Well, actually, 1980s, Belfast. Yeah, we're still there. It's still, it's still Dickensian for that, to that point. 
So I was like, that was that was really like garlic to Dracula. <laughs> but I'm lying there as, as years went, a whole year had gone by. And then, you know, I was in such a state of total utter depression. It was about 97, uh, sorry, 87. And I suddenly decided, and, I, and, I, and we were together and I said, and I said, the, the un, unbelie- I couldn't even believe it was saying, I says, so are those classes still on? He goes, oh, sure, they're always on. In fact, hey, if you go now, you know, you'll actually be able to sign in. And he goes, I'm taking, I'm, I'm, I'm taking uh, uh, the class as well. So why don't I go down with you? It ended up, he, he didn't. But he said, I'll accompany you down to talk to the tutor. Jesus, talk about six donkeys being pulled down the street. I was so livid. I was livid with myself. I was going, why are you doing this? It's wasting time. You know, there's a million things I could be doing. And I was literally pulled. And I was down there and the lights, I went, it was, it was nighttime. It was a rainy, windy day. And I went in and it was bright lights, which I fucking hate, right? And there's all these students and shit. And it just smelled of school. <laughs> and I thought I'd seen the back of that, you know, years before at high yeah. school. No, we go over and we sit down and this Jack comes and sits down. But I immediately like the look of him. So something about my past life in schools immediately changed because when Alan sat down, I kind of immediately had a, a like to the guy. And it slightly calmed myself down. And my friend sat here and I just sat sort of like, you know, disheveled. No, it's not me. He's re-signing up. But I, re- I signed. I couldn't believe it. But something about this guy, Alan, and he was the philosophy teacher, I liked. And it turned out that he'd been what we call in England, you'd recognize the term bin man. Americans don't know what that is, right? It's your yeah, trash yeah, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. Right? And he, he'd been a right boozer and all. And he was a man from the streets. Yeah. like we were and he had taught himself philosophy to get out of the streets now that endeared me that's howard rourke yeah and th- th- i like that so i signed up in, in and i signed up the following year as well and did the two years but it was penniless so i couldn't buy any of the books or anything i didn't even have lunch i didn't I didn't have 50 pence for lunch or anything like that so i just stuck it out and uh went through it not to matriculate just to sit in the class and uh, it was uh, tough, you know. Uh, in those days, you see, bus bus drivers wouldn't pick you up if uh, if you were wearing like a heavy metal T-shirt or you know you had long hair or whatever. So uh, you'd wait at the bus stop, you know, in my home to be taken, and they just splash in the water, you know, uh, and drench you. Wow. Uh, or, so I'd end up walking through the rain and everything, you know, to get miles and miles and miles to this college and sit there shivering in the freezing cold. They didn't have any radiators. I mean, it's just an unbelievable scene. But my mind was alight. Yeah. So I tell you, the thing was so unbearable. Going there, sitting there freezing, you know, storms would look, can you think the windows were coming in? Really, really bad weather. But the success was I had to get out of that bed. I had to get out of the house and, and animate myself. And it worked. And I mm. took English literature, you know, as well. And so it worked. My mind suddenly was reading and studying and coming alive. Didn't understand Dick, right? And I did, I did make some notes in a folder, and I still have those folders today. I didn't understand much, but you didn't need to. My brain was finally being nourished, mm. you know, with your Descartes and your Nietzsche's and all of this and Plato. So that's when the real philosophy to answer your question began. And then it never stopped. And I bought my first book when I got to American Spinoza, then moved to Hegel, you know. So yes, it was always in the background. Until finally now, you got to a point where, you know, books could be written and websites could be done. And I've got two websites on philosophy and several books and all of that. You know, there's more on the way. Working on a magnum opus now. 
uh, on existentialism. We've done some very good podcasts as well. So thank goodness. So I would actually say it's the earlier interest, mm. but it just didn't, um, it didn't get a saddle. Yeah. You know, it was always in the paddock, but it never got dolled up to go uh, down the, 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 royal, the royal road, you know, until much, much later. But in a way, that's good because I've diligently studied it. I'm not just waffling. You know, yeah. now that it has matured, at least it's good stuff and I can trust it and it's uh, animated. But it started in those terrible, terrible days of, you know, chronic depression and just not wanting to do it, but having to. Your body literally had to do it. Your mind actually had to move. Otherwise, you'd have just been rotted away, literally rotted away. You know, my hair started falling out, my muscle atrophy. You know, it's the, this, all these weird syndromes. I know they have technical names for them. I was actually melting away, literally. And if I hadn't, the autonomic system, the parasympathetic, just, you know, it was like, it was like living in Biafra. <laughs> you just literally, the body will wilt away mm. from depression. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's the truth. So look, look at the brilliant, uh, you know, it saved my life. It really did. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, speaking of like of saving lives and the importance of it, I mean, it rejuvenated you. And um, it seems to me like it'd be great. We'd have quite a different world if people did have, more of an interest in that that material and now we have a a really bizarre we've got this 21st century kind of bizarro world where it's a everything's inverted everything's upside down and and all the you know the people with their phds and their little bits of paper and, and on the walls they're they're some of the most you know unhinged deluded misguided spouting the most rubbish just nonsense you'd ever imagine but i mean it's it's unbelievable it is unbelievable i mean we've ended up going and we're supposed to be in this phase of you know the the age of the the, the individual right and that's sort of how i see it anyway we're supposed to be in the age of the individual um but there's this huge collectivist kind of impulse and movement that's trying to drag us back into this this idiotic hive mind um <laughs> let's let's kind of like go in this direction and chat about this how what are your first thoughts that come to mind yeah we are but you're right about these scientists. Uh, one other thing that they're doing, apart from sp spotting physicalistic nonsense, is they're stealing from previous scientists. Some of the top people in Berkeley right now, who's that guy, George Lakoff, you know, he speaks about metaphors and language and metaphor. He stole it all from Julian James, who died. Uh. So they wait a few years. Oh, uh, but the main point of this is that they mocked Julian James when he was alive. It wouldn't be so bad if they were legitimate people. This punce is stealing from a man who's dead and his reputation is gone. And his book was slandered and he was slandered. But this rat bag has gone in in the night, nicked all Julian James's magnificent work on metaphor and put his own stamp on it. So these are dupe, these are rat bags. And, you, you know, I know how to destroy them because I know where their work comes from. You know, I keep a track on what they're doing and I know where they got their ideas and I know where their turning points are and all that. It's just a, a, it's a foible of mine to keep a, a, you know, interest in what they're doing. And it's scarless. It's absolutely so you're completely right there. But you see, we are in the age of individualism, but for every, it's like I just said at the end of my Thule Society video, which will be out soon, for every step forward in terms of light, charity, hope, and justice, there's the devil leering at your side. And so now that we have the push towards true intellectual freedoms, in walks death and the devil to throw bricks and throw logs in the way. We have more evil now because there's a spirit of rebellion, as I call it in my articles, is manifesting and that's true astrologically anyone who's got any astrological knowledge knows that that's completely true pluto uranus and uh, neptune you know all the planets of that kind of 
spiritual level of uh, individuation, let's just call it, is abroad in the world. We wouldn't be having this podcast now if it wasn't. So the evidence is there for it. But so are the deep platformers. So is Mark, right? Yep. Adolf Zuckerberg <laughs> and all the rest of them plonkers. Look at the state of them, you know, and they're very feminized. So there's a psychological aspect in there as well. You know, they become completely feminized as males. You can see it in their features and their faces and their voices and, and the rubbish they're putting out to the world. Mm -hmm. So we have more evil, but in a way that evil can be seen as a good thing, strangely, because it signals that there's a spirit of rebellion in the world. And I was just, it just, that doesn't mean that it's, uh, you know, there's, there's other problems along the way. You know, let's, let's see what happens because the medical, all the great institutions of evil still exist. The Vatican still exists, the papacy, the Jesuits, the medical profession, the lawyers, all of, all of these evil buggers still exist. And they do so because, you know, we're still, the eagles are still amongst the chicken coop, picking at maggots. They need to spread their wings and fly and inspire others to do the same. That's what I try to do. I know that's what you're doing. So, you know, there's still early stages yet. But um, there's an old statement, isn't there, that uh, one small match of light, like, you know, lightens up a whole darkened room. So we have to look at it that way. Um, and also always be champions of freedom. If people want to remain in the swamp, let them. This is my message is that uh, you never violate the freedom of the human race. If it wants to live in fear, if it wants to live in constant panic, if it wants to live in fear porn from morning to night, and if it doesn't want to pick up the great work and honor the mentors of the past, let it. Truth is not going anywhere. No matter, you, you know, you can't lock truth up. And the thing is to do is to take it into your heart, read the masters. Why would you want to resist that? And if you are a kind of person who is either resisting that or has a subconscious antipathy towards the knowledge, hey, maybe then you shouldn't even be near the fucking knowledge if it threatens you that much. Hey, I'm not going to shove it in your face. You don't, you don't pick up a Rush album and go, listen to this fucking album. I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> right? you. You wait till they get into the band or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with other knowledge. If you don't, you have been told by the Moody Blues and Pink Floyd and Rush and all these great, great bands and many others I could mention. So, and it was just turning on a dial and saying, hey, I love that track. And then moving to the next thing and listening to the lyrics. It's as natural as that. So if you see that it's, for a lot of people, it's not natural and they don't pick it up even when it's laid on the line right in front of them. Well, do you know something? What kind of idiot are you to go in there and, you know, try to rehardwire their heads? No, don't do that. Just stay away. That's why we went behind on slave. You know, I, I, I never was a fan of social media anyway. I had very little to do with it. Then I got deplatformed, you know, way before we were, de I was deplatformed in first, well, I, you know, like back in 2010, I'm talking about, and then yeah. a big one happened in uh, 15 when my channel that I had got for 10 years on the original Unslaved YouTube channel was taken down for no reason. Yeah. So that was when I said, well, that's good. Because now, because I'd been asking for a confirmation. I was asking for a sign. Not saying yes or not saying no. I stayed very neutral. But the moment that that site was taken down, I, I said, we won't build another one. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll build a storage one or something, but it'll be private. And that's uh, when we decided then to forge ahead with Unslaved. I uh, had that site for about 10 years before. It was just a holding, a placeholder site again. Uh, and we then ramped it up into you know uh, what it is today so just i just finished doing all the links for the last uh, just before we were talking you know uh, <clears throat> did the links for the last uh caleb mm -hmm. well actually i actually had two to do 
the Bitcoin one. I always do the links. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a quite lengthy to do those and just finished before we came on to talk. The, the, the last one, Caleb Coley talking about the Great Commons Beaumont, so people can check that out. Yeah. And I always put good links below, you know, for follow-up. Because why I do that is because I know, I've always known that people are like, you know, even some members, not all obviously, but there's people out there going, give us a fucking break. And then even members, when they tell a friend, girlfriend or boyfriend, those guys, I know, I already know. They're sitting there, you know, cooking the bagel and going, give me a fucking break to our members. Yeah. So I want those members. So no, asshole. What I just told you is true because Michael provides all these links below to confirm every word they're saying. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do to my members. Don't don't say one word. Don't accept one word of what I'm saying about the you know, Knights of Malta or whoever it is. Go and check these links below. They're neutral. The only reason they're Wikipedia, it's not because I love Wikipedia, but they don't break. Those, uh, you know, do you know what it's like to spend 20 years putting links and then come back and they're all gone yeah. from other websites and stuff? <laughs> so just purely convenience, not because I'm a fan of Wikipedia. Let's get that straight. Mm-hmm. But I do link there and sometimes I'll link to somewhere else. But that is done entirely for educational purposes because I know what I've experienced and what the members are going to experience when they turn around and try to say, hey, do you know, I just watched this thing and it says all this and the responses are going to get. So yeah. I, I want them to go out with a full toolkit of armor and, and, and weapons to say, because go, come on, come on, you got to say it doesn't, doesn't exist, right? You're going to say these secret societies don't control the world. Come on, let's have that conversation then. And my members will win every fucking time. That's, <laughs> that, that's you know, that's for sure. That's why those links are there. Well, I mean, we know, we know that um, the people who are, you know, have that attitude, right? I mean, they're generally not, they don't have the attitude because they're well-informed. They have it because they're not well-informed <laughs> and they don't want to be. So it's like, it's not, a, it's an easy fight in one way because you, you know, you've got the facts on your side, but on the other hand, they're not listening anyway. <laughs> no, especially when you start narrating the facts and they can see that you're on the strong ground. Nine times out of 10, they suddenly walk away. But at least there's a feeling of victory that you are, because remember there's elements of doubt in all of us who are studying these subjects. I want to go a few steps ahead and provide key information so that the, the person feels more confident. Maybe not at first, but after watching two, three, four podcasts and a few premiums, they go, all my last doubts are gone. All my last doubts are gone. It's right there. And this even is the case. And see, I'm not really even against that suspicion. If you, But if you have a Ralph Ellison or a Michael Cremo, and we've had that, or a Sheldrake, it is so important that people digest their information. Yeah. Then the next step is it's important that you are able to defend it out there in the in the wide world. Not get into punch-ups, but never lower your eyes. I always tell my premium members, uh, uh, the, the unslaved members, never let them have the last word. Don't do it violently, but do it in a way that is heroic and you stand for the knowledge. Don't cower. Don't cow. Don't let them go. Like, yeah, I won that. No, you mm-hmm. fucking won't. I never allow them to do it. Yeah. Not that I'm in conversation with anyone, but you know, in the days when I did. Uh, I would always leave them with that little pearl, you know, something about the Nazis or, you know, or whatever, whatever it may be, leave them with that little element of doubt. And that's rehearsal and that's practice. And that's really digesting the information. Somebody goes, but Michael, I'm too Tim. I could, you will, if you watch more, if you study more, you will find yourself being able to win those points. Yep. The only one who doesn't do it is the one who's just uh, superficial. You know, I check it out now and again. Yeah, well, that's right. But the one who's really serious about it can give dates, can give names, can give something to the, the naysayer. And, and throw them off and make them realize, yeah, I don't want to have that conversation, but that's a victory. You've just won some. If they walk away from you, you've won. And that's yeah. the way I'm, I am dispositionally. It's the way I am more now than ever because whether people have realized it or not, they, America's went through a major defeat recently. Mm-hmm. A very good man, a well-meaning man who wasn't a politician, 
was ground under by the same wheels of the same juggernaut that puts other people who are the worst tyrants in oh, yeah. power. So for goodness sake, what is all that about? And then they're trying to justify it. Do you realize now that the Democrats on the left are in a complete state of meltdown because they know they have buyer's remorse over this lunatic that they put in the White House <laughs> and they're, they're, they're so discombobulated by it, just them, forget about any other Republican or anything like that. They themselves know in their heart of hearts Buyer beware. This man can get us into a, this or the, the woman behind, behind him can get us into a war with Iran anytime now. The hair trigger, you know, and also they think it'll be good for the economy and they, they want to be they want to have heads on walls. And so the Democrats now are realizing, oh, my God, we voted for the wrong person. Uh, you know, most of them will never admit to get Mr. Trump back. OK, that's understood. But they, they do know they've they've done the wrong thing for America by what they've done. They have. They, they know they've got buyer's remorse. So. It's sad that with hindsight, people can see this. And as to what Mr. Trump will do, he'll partially come back just to be, you know, like he was before, a bit of a political spokesman or out there, you know, not running for officer anymore, but maybe doing something along those lines. Who can tell? He couldn't come back anyway because that would just set the fires alight. The whole, everything that was witnessed in the last several years was because he was in office and they wanted to get him out. So he knows if he puts his head around the door again, they'll go back to the mayhem. So he knows not to do that, but it still doesn't mean that he's out for the count. My mm. prediction is he'd probably come back as a sort of a pundit, you know, be a few interviews, tell of a, a book or, you know, something like that. That doesn't irritate him to the point where they run rampant in the street. And I'm hoping that then from a more soft approach, his message will galvanize a new sort of conservative movement, not the Republicans you've got there, hopeless. They've mm. stabbed him in the back as well. He wasn't just taken down by any Democrats. He was stabbed in the back from his own people. So there's many renovations need to be done. But despite the men at the top, what's really to be looked for is the people themselves, as you just said, really getting enjoying this fragrance of freedom that they haven't had for, you know, even in the lockdown has shown them what can happen. You stiffen up on your legal rights, you stiffen up on the statutes, the constitutional approach, knowledge, uh, and you try to slowly galvanize in your local community more people over to your side, uh, you know, through podcasts, through just speaking, putting leaflets, doing public events. Something like that will have to happen to re-educate people. Uh, and hopefully, you know, what I do is just disseminate the information that people don't even know about a John Birch Society or the great authors like Stanton Evans and, you know, all these great ones we would know about. The, the public doesn't know about them. So I just try to make their work available so that the greatest minds, Phyllis Schlafly, you know, will be up there, uh, not top of the line, but, you know, the, the good conservative solid uh, people that Americans need to read, certainly the Ayn Rand's, she would be at the top. Uh, and, and, you know, down from there, but still very valuable work. The great Stanton Evans, I'm going to do work on him. What a, what a great patriot, what a great genius. And there are many, many others as well. So it's just disseminating that information so that you can get your hands on it when that abyss comes and you say, I, I, I think I've been had by all sides of the political spectrum. Where do I go? You know, where's my new moorings? What do you think, uh, you know, looking at politics, breaking it down psychologically, what do you think drives the kind of the the, the anti-intellectualist, anti-freedom kind of streak that's so obviously manifest? I mean, we see it particularly strongly in the, the so-called left, but I mean, what do you think is are the psychodynamics playing out in front of us? I've lost your sound, mate. Yeah, you're right. I'm not so much a favor of the other side, so to speak. Uh, it, this is a... <laughs> And the reason, the real reason is because it avoids psychology. You go to politics when you're not interested in personal psychology. So that's the, the, the big brush stroke idea. Then on another level, it has been misparenting. 
Back in the 1950s, women were doing Tupper parties, Tupperware parties instead of watching the PTA, which was communized to the to the red, you know, and they let it happen. Women in America are the most guilty. Men were out working in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. So the women were in charge of the schooling and it is actually on their watch. Mm-hmm. It's on their watch that the communization took place, period. Third, the home life in the, in the deep psychological way of what happens to ordinary children. And, and this is, goes then for all the world at the time of the Oedipal. Now, we're, you know, if you go into the real psychology, it's the whole issue of then birthing a child and watching them move. You've just had a child yourself in December, I believe, right? So this early period right now, leading up to about seven, and there's at least five stages. Every school has different ideas on that, you know, but the Freudian idea is about five. Then you add an auto rank, a Melanie Klein, and you get more. But the basic idea is you go through these stages and at each of these stages, they're kind of milestones as to whether the child is going to be able to greet reality, the reality principle, or remain within the pleasure principle or find a happy medium between. So the first seven years is the guarantor of what I just said. So if you arrive at six, seven, eight, after what they call the latency period, when, when reality is now as, as, about as clear and clean and vivid as it's ever going to be. Now we're talking very generally because for some very intelligent kids, it happens earlier. And for some a little bit more vague kids, you know, it takes time. It takes to be nine, 10 before. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is everybody's temperament. But the thing is that uh, if the mother hasn't had her act together and is a very feminized type and hates men, that's the end of that. Um, because the, 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 vision of malehood in everything not just physical men but the whole of masculinity and what it stands for is already disfigured probably from the very early stages of the eatable mm-hmm. well that, that's how you get this so the only refuge that you have as you move into full lucidity is that you don't want to be in full lucidity it's it's like the solar light of the masculine world is so offensive to these snowflakes that they uh do what they do we all know what they do. Very few people know why they're doing what they do. Mm-hmm. It's because they have to cluster with others in a kind of, a, you know, the way sheep, if frightened, will all gather together. So it's fear that gets them into these clubs and groups and anger and violence is included as well. You know, I've gone into that about the crowd dynamics, mm-hmm. sort of taking what Gustave Le Bon and others have said, but modernizing it in terms of modern, not that you have to do much modernizing, I'll tell you, <laughs> but you know, a certain amount has to be done. I've done that on my Dragon Mother site and other writings. But basically, it's antipathy to reality. They call it the reality principle, mm-hmm. right? It's probably not the best term, but all it just means is whether or not you can greet reality. Now, everybody needs has that regressive urge to, you know, the regressive urge will always be there, but it's, it's not, what's happened is it's become maximized. It's been really ramped up because of the leadership, because of the deviant parenting, because of one parent homes where the father's just like some house slave at best. And then not there later on when the welfare state decides the wife can live alone. You know, so Woody Allen said, you never meet the wife until you get into divorce court for, and sadly he's right, especially in terms of California and America and, and the, you know, and women are not turning that around. Women have no interest in turning around what is happening. So don't wait for them. So it's not that I'm, you know, uh, advocating uh, unnecessarily man has to step up now. In fact, most of the, the message I have about female psychology should be taught by females, two females. The whole thing's wrong that a guy like me has even had to do the study and then bring it to the world. Yeah. But of course, that's the second best 
thing to do when nobody's doing it anyway and women have dropped the ball. Right. Well, then, unfortunately, you'll see another weird, odd phenomenon, which is a guy like me, you know, now having to advocate or MGTOW, you know, in a more extreme way or whatever. Yeah, well, you guys, you girls brought it about. Since female psychology is the last thing on your list of interest in the world, in history, did you think it was just going to stay buried? Well, I know you did, but wrong. Life has its own momentum and movement, and it is empowering to both men and women to get into psychology, but it's more empowering right now to focus on female psychology, since that's the one that was really, you know, thrown into the, thrown into the dungeon and hoped that it would never be resurrected. So, but when you read the great female psychologists, uh, you know, then you realize how important this is. So one of the reasons why we've ramped up in politics right now and all of these mayhems are happening is the consequence of women not remaining true to psychology. And, and actually, although they have an interest in psychology and become psychologists, no, I said female psychology. There's all the world and there's all the difference in the world by saying a woman, you know, women are in lots of psychologists, lots of psychiatrists. I didn't say that. I know that. That's just jumping through hoops of the medical profession and going getting a, you know, a degree for all that's worth. I'm talking about sincere interest in, in Melanie Klein, in Alice Miller, in uh, Karen Hornet, and, uh, and we don't have that. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. So as that gets worse and women's interest in their own psychology gets worse, tyranny is on the rise. There's a direct, direct relationship between those two things. So what man does or not does is sort of helpful, but the real remedies are, you know, women's consciousness being raised again to where it used to be with healthy interests and admiration for men rather than envy and hatred of men. Uh, you know, which is what penis envy really is. If you really get down into it, they've tried to disfigure all of these Freudian things so that nobody will study it and they'll just immediately have a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, no, no. These psychologists were well onto a lot of things. Freud got a lot of things wrong, but he also got a lot of things right. Mm. And his descendants, Anna Freud would be another one, and other his descendants, uh, they restored and revived some of the areas where he was very weak or even completely wrong. They have already rectified it all. So there's no excuse but then feminism came along, which then did its trick to sequester all of psychology under feminism, making it look like they are interested in, in that. Mm -hmm. But Camille Pally and all will tell you, no, they're not. She has called them on it. And Phyllis Schlafly, if you, uh, not Phyllis Schlafly, but Phyllis Chesler, who's an arch carrot carrying feminist. Uh -huh. Read her work and you'll soon find that there's been another deception unleashed from feminism on the world to try and say, we are the ones who are into psychology. We, we put that in our titles. And yet it's all lies. They've misrepresented the Oedipal stages, the things I spoke about, and they've tried to normalize feminism. But what feminism is, is feminization, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And they've normalized feminization and the whole world has fallen for it because reality is tough. It's, you have to be a hero to face uh, reality. You don't have to be a hero if you regress back into the lunar stages of the pleasure principle. And worse, there's even lower than that. And that's where we're heading. Yeah. So it's tragic. When I mean, when you hear feminists talk about stuff like when you hear a phrase like toxic masculinity, you know, what's what what comes into your head when you hear something like that? These buzzwords. Yeah. People living in the word. Uh, it doesn't matter what word it is. Well, another counterpoint to what I've just said is living in the word capitalism, communism, uh, community. Uh, toxic masculinity It's just a word. Toxic masculinity refers to men who know what they're talking about when it comes to women. <laughs> So women just react by saying it's toxic masculine. Yeah, one who can see through all the bullshit that you're laced up with, all the cosmetics and everything a woman has been doing for decades upon decades upon decades and doing it without a single qualm or any shame. 
trillion dollar business, you know, which involves the slaughter, the t- torture of animals in, in laboratories and the slush that they put in these magazines. Who's fucking buying it? Somebody can t- sell you anything, but you don't have to be buying it. And then their daughters are growing up neurotic, bulimic, anorexic, suicidal, homicidal, and the mothers are not aware of it. Well, I'm fucking aware of it. And I'll call you out if nobody else does. And I have been doing it since we did female Illuminati, my end statements, right? And they, they are poignant and, and there's a responsibility. So even words like responsibility today, you know, it, it's, it's becoming uh, lost in the mix because mm-hmm. people are actually living in the word. But if all you've got are words to attack us, then call me this or call me a uh, you know, the racist or call me you know, a conservative or a fascist. Keep on doing it because the more you do it, the less and less and less the word ends up having power. Mm. So what they've done is they've gone into overdrive with the words, fashioning words. It's like a, a mill and it's wearing thin. It's wearing thin. First, it had a lot of feeling. You go, OK, I'll back down. You look what they did to Milo. All right. Uh, a conservative gay man. Oh, they, they try to tear him down you know, so many ways. So they're not hearing the words. I don't think even the gay community heard the words. Oh, my God. What do you think you're doing? All right. So they have 100 ways of coming at you every way to not hear what you're saying. You're black. No, you're not black. You're poor. No, no, you're too rich. You're too poor. You're too this. You're too that. You, you, you're not a citizen. You're not every which way they'll find to not listen to the message. So there's many things that come out of that. One is total futility where people just give up. The others are going, our message hasn't been honed enough. Let's keep polishing. See, that's the willful thing. Say, so, yeah, maybe the message wasn't, I did waste too much time. I, I, I'm not very clear on my points. So you get your Dinesh D'Souza out and sharpen your act or you get this person out, or you get that person out, right? And you sharpen your act so that you're better the next time and you're better next. Don't give up and don't limit what's happening just to, like you mentioned earlier about the question, don't limit it to just conservative action against liberal. That is actually not going to lead you anywhere. No. That might, I hate government. That has to be gone. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Ayn Rand. Have government only in the most basic, limited level of, you know, mere defense organism or whatever. It has no say. And everything she's saying is logical because once upon a time, the world got free the moment the church and, and state was separated, wasn't it? That's when we really saw advancement and progress that caused Western civilization. Yeah. And number two is get government out of it too. State, get state out of the affairs of economics. Not ruling it like it is now. The different church and state separated and man grew because this Leviathan of darkness was told to back off. You can still exist, but don't interfere. Right. They've never forgiven us for that, by the way. But (laughs) now state is an economics need to be separated. And economics is your daily bread and how you live and how you hustle and what you how you move towards your vocation. How come the human race is so dumb to know you don't need government to interfere in all of that? And we've seen decades of their interference. I've got books that show you step by step how government interfered since Roosevelt's time, you know, and made law after law about the milk and how you can grow this and whether you can have a river on your land and you can't and how many pigs you're going to have. You know, it's worse than the Norman invasion. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and, and these people, these people, you know, in America are letting it happen. And then you've got people who try, I think, well-meaningly to go, the states need to separate from the federal you know, system. Why? You think states are any more less criminal? Mm. You don't. What, what do you know about American history then? The states can be as corrupt, as mafioso, as horrific as the state. In fact, sometimes the federal government is needed because it has many times come into states to take out bullies, mass murderers, like the case of Lyndon Johnson, anybody who really knew. 
you know, about American history would, would shiver at saying, well, you know, that's not wholly true. And unfortunately, many, many people I love advocated that. And I had to do further research to find out, no, a state can be run by a local mafia. Mm-hmm. And they can bury your fucking body. And nobody's going to come looking for you if, the, if you fall foul of the local governor or the local mayor or the local... Look, the, didn't Bill Clinton run Mina, Arkansas like a gangster? <laughs> yeah, let's have no authority over him. Let's have yeah. no federal government that you can go to with him and his cronies as they sucked you dry and yeah. shot and murdered 40 people or anybody else. And God knows how many hundreds of them. So wake up. It's, that's not the solution. Federal government has done very mean things and very, very you know, violated human freedom, but so have local states as well. The Native American Indians right now are being given so much sovereignty and they're abusing it. My God, they're, they're, they're talking about bling. These guys themselves are a corrupt institution. So just because you've got sovereignty and just because you've got you know, some other rights like that doesn't mean that you're pure and beautiful and going back to tribal ways. You, all you create is a new gangsters with their fucking cigars and their barbed wire fences and their strip limousines or whatever they call them. That was part one of my conversation with Michael Tassarian. I hope you enjoyed it, and stay tuned for part two where he gets into PC, cancel culture, grappling with Heidegger, forgotten geniuses, parenting, his forthcoming work, Jim Keith, and much, much more. Enjoy. The Freedom Mirror is a community for entrepreneurs and business owners that gives you the tools and the system to create a new revenue stream online through high commission sales with automation and huge passive potential. With TFE, you can forget about small margins and small commissions and learn how to make five figures in seven sales or less. To find out how to set up your freedom business, check out the free training at brendandmurphy.com slash income. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network. It's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.